You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. I'm excited here today to be joined again by a guest that we've had on, I guess, a couple of times, maybe even say three times if we if we want to uh, count when we featured his particular, you know, favorite thing I've ever eaten at a duck camp. And that is Dr. Heath Hagee, the waterfowl ecologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's National Wildlife Refuge System in the Southeast region. Heath, welcome back. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. And today we are again going to be talking about something related to uh, food, waterfowl food in this case. We spoke with you about buffet lines and foraging ecology last time. What was the favorite thing you've ever eaten? And so there's no subliminal message or anything going on here, Heath. I just want to make sure you know that. I'm good at this food thing. What can I say? (laughs) But uh, yeah, we are going to be talking about waterfowl foods today. Plants, really exciting things about plants. Interestingly, our producer here asked me before we started, like, are you are we going to be using any sort of additional sounds? Could we play sounds from uh, from some waterfowl species here on some of our other episodes now that we have some little new soundboard over here? And I said, no, I don't think so. There's not many sounds that plants make, you know, I guess unless rustling of the leaves uh-huh. in the wind, but we don't have any of that kind of stuff. So, uh, so yes, no sounds to be uh, to accompany this episode, but we are going to be talking about all the different types of plants that people will encounter uh, in wetlands, whether out hunting or whether just out um, viewing wetlands and viewing birds and waterfowl. And if you're kind of curious about what these plants are, obviously we're not going to be able to do any sort of show and tell to help you identify them. But people that 
spend a lot of time out in the wetlands will be familiar generally with the type of plants that we're going to be talking about. And so what we will do as we go through this, and Heath is going to be our expert here, he's going to kind of run down a list of general types or classes of, of plants. And then we're going to kind of come back to some of those and talk about what their value is to waterfowl, both in terms of food, but also in terms of uh, cover or any other sort of secondary benefit. It may not directly eat the plant or the, the plant parts, but maybe it serves as a substrate for some other food item. We're going to talk about all that kind of stuff and just kind of hopefully help you see and understand while you're out there in the field, some of these plants, you'll get an idea of what they're useful for or if they're not useful. So, we're going to jump right in here and, and get your thoughts on it. I guess from a, a bit of a historical perspective, you and I being in the sort of research and science field of waterfowl ecology, we know that food habits and our interest in what ducks and geese and swans eat been around for a long time. And you and some of your colleagues at Mississippi State looked into some of this here a few years ago, summarizing all the different works that had been done, uh, summarizing food habits. There's a number of different publications that people can find regarding some of the historic data that summarized. And so why has it been, why are we so interested and have we been so interested in what waterfowl or any wildlife for that matter have uh, what they eat and what they prefer to eat. Why is that important? When we think about how to manage for something, especially waterfowl during the non-breeding period, one of the most important things that we have control over is the food, or at least partial control over that. We can't control the weather. We can't control migration. We can't control uh, habitat breeding population habitat. We can't control what goes on in the prairies and snowfall and, and uh, the, what the Canadian pond count is going to be, so on and so forth. But in, in the wintering and migration areas, what we can control oftentimes in our, on our national wildlife refuges, on our state WMAs, um, or in our private wetlands is what kinds of food is out there. Um, and, and sometimes we can even, even control uh, how accessible that food is because that's, that's an important part of it too. Not just what foods are there, but making sure that there's water on it at the appropriate time so that waterfowl can, can, can rest and feed and, and that actually provides some habitat resources. You know, um, for instance, bottomland forests provide wonderful cover. They provide some food, but oftentimes bottomland forests are either, you know, not flooded during most of the winter period or they're flooded 20 feet deep. Um, and so that really is a challenge then for birds to access those food resources in some of our, you know, naturally flooded bottomland forests. And so where we provide a lot of our food then is in, you know, managed impoundments or in other areas or the combination of the two. And so that's an important kind of balancing act that we walk there to figure out how much food birds need, waterfowl specifically, and make sure that it's available at the right times for them. In terms of you know, why this has been so such a foundational piece of our understanding of waterfowl or the foundational in the history of waterfowl science, you know, the, all these food habit studies that I, that I referenced, people would collect birds and look inside their, their esophagus, their crop, and then their gizzard, all the, you know, the <laughs> digestive system, try to identify what it is they're eating. There's other ways they can kind of go about this, but that is important for a very basic reason. And there is a, a book that I bought a few years ago. It's like a foraging ecology. Uh, it was maybe the early, the mid 2000s when it was released. And it was sort of like the contemporary understanding of foraging ecology for all sorts of wildlife. And on the back of the book, the very simple 
most profound statement is that wildlife have to eat to survive. That's right. That's <laughs> exactly right. So, yes, we we want these well, we need to know what it is that they're eating, what they prefer if we want to do habitat management that they uh, that, that benefits them in in the greatest ways. So, yeah, as you look back through the history of that science, there are a number of classic publications. I'm looking at one here, American Wildlife and Plants, A Guide to Wildlife Food Habits uh, by Alexander Martin, Herbert Zim, and Arnold Nelson. The date on this is what? He, do you know right offhand? I don't. It's going to be what, the 40s? Uh, 1950, 1951. And then there's right. another one, a research report from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Department of Interior, Food of Game Ducks in the United States and Canada. And this one dates to 1939. And these are not thin publications. I mean, they're thick documents indicating that we've been studying waterfowl food habits for a long time. A long time. Yeah. Over over 100 years. Certainly people have been doing it longer than that. Um, But I would say some of the beginnings of the published food habits literature uh, began about 100 years ago. That's when we start to see it really really become more common in literature. And it, it sort of blew up during the, the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Um, we had a lot of food habits literature um, or diet literature, if you will. Um, but then it sort of tapered off uh, in, in the, in the, uh, as we got through to the 80s and 90s. And that prompted a few of us at Mississippi State to, to look at that and figure out why um, those studies had tapered off. Why did we quit uh, collecting birds and looking at food habits? Did we, had we already answered all of our questions? Did we know enough or had we moved on to other things and sort of forgotten about it? So we pulled together a, um, a paper a few years ago and um, looked at that change in that in food habits literature over about a hundred year period, give or take. And what was pretty interesting is that although we, we tapered off in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, the studies that were done were a lot better than the studies that had been done before from a from a, a scientific standpoint. So it, bear with me, if you will. Early on, we collected ducks from anywhere we could get them. Hunter shot birds, going out and pass shooting birds. When you say we, we're talking the collective waterfowl management the collective community. Community. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the community collectively collected lots of birds, um, but they were from all kinds of all kinds of different sources. The problem with that is you can imagine a, a soft seed or an invertebrate sitting you know, at the bottom of a duck blind or in the bottom of a boat for eight hours with a dog laying on it. Things begin to change. There's actually digestion that can continue to to, to go on while even though the, the even though the duck is no longer alive and so you you begin to lose some of those soft-bodied invertebrates especially some of the softer seeds you, re- and you but you retain things like acorn some of the hard um, moist soil seeds like uh, uh, smart weed and other things and so there was a little bit of bias in the literature that you know we noticed and it's not something that that we pointed out it was noticed in the 80s and and like I said the, the studies that had gone on had gotten better but we, after those problems were pointed out, you know, there were hundreds of studies done in North America on uh, on food habits of waterfowl. But after we figured out that there were some biases there, that we weren't picking up all the invertebrates that we knew there because our collection methods weren't weren't that good, nobody had really started that process up um, again to go out and 
fix some of those biases, see what we were missing in those studies. And so um, several folks um, have done that uh, since then. I don't know if they noticed it too, or our paper was the, you know, was the impetus for that. But um, we have several diet studies going on now, or I'm part of several diet studies going on now to figure out not only what do ducks eat, but actually what do they, what do they select? So that's an important part of it that mostly was missing from the literature was going out and measuring what is in the wetland, right? So it, it's one thing if maybe there's a lot of millet seeds in the diet, a lot of smartweed seeds or a lot of acorns, but if there were also a lot of those just naturally where the ducks were foraging, it might not be that the ducks were selecting that. It might be that it's just naturally that's what they're encountering. And so they're getting a lot of that. And so uh, in the last 20 years or so, a number of studies have begun to do more selection type analyses. They're experimentally collecting the birds, which we watch them forage, we collect them, we process them very quickly, we stop the digestion um, so that we know exactly what's in their esophagus. We also go out and we measure what's available in the, um, in the wetlands or in the habitat resources so that we know whether ducks are selecting something, avoiding something, or eating it just as much as, as it naturally occurs in the environment. And that's really helping us better understand, uh, you know, how the duck perceives the the environment, how they're going after seeds, and then what we need to do as as wetland managers to make sure we provide what they what they need. And you mentioned selection. Another way of thinking about that is preference. What do you what do they prefer? And I don't know if technically that's the right way to say it, but maybe it helps people think about it. In that, yes, if they if you collect these birds from a wet from a wetland, and their their digestive system is filled with. Uh, with millet, but then you go out there and sample the wetland. There's very little millet mm-hmm. compared to all the other uh, seeds that are available. That's going to tell you that they are quote selecting, preferring <laughs> those uh, the the millet seeds, um, right? That's that that's correct. That that would be that would be classic selection. Technically, preference. You know, we, so we, if we're going to nerd out here yeah. for a second. <laughs> Technically, preference is a is another step past that, but yeah, I think that's fine to think of it that way. They're they're preferring or they're selecting for uh, certain seeds, and it's super interesting uh, what different size ducks and what different species of ducks will do. For instance, during spring migration, green winged teal actually have been shown to avoid millet, barnyard grass, which we think is a wonderful food for all ducks. And it is for mallards, and it probably is for some of the bigger species, larger duck species. But for green-winged teal, it's not that they won't eat it, but they were selecting for smaller things like cyperus seeds, very, very small seeds. Okay, so you have me curious now. You've (laughs) you've obviously, you've been in the foraging ecology science uh, much longer than I have. Um, Matter of fact, I've not really done much hands-on uh, work within that within that particular subdiscipline, you might say. The difference between preference and selection. Ah, so I'm going to go back to the Johnson 1980. <laughs> so, super, so this is this is super technical and in the weeds. So some of your listeners We're can probably- We're talking plants, so that's plant. okay. Right, 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 right. They, they can tone out for just a minute. Hopefully <laughs> they come back with us, right? Selection, um, generally what we think of is that if we go out and we measure what's naturally occurring in the environment. So, you know, it's it's going to be patchy. We're going to try to, we're going to, try to measure that as best we can, but we're not controlling what's out there. We're not presenting- equal amounts of millet and equal amounts of other foods together. But So a true preference study, we would have to either do it in a lab or 
um, you, you know, in a controlled environment or potentially do it out in a wetland where we, we gave the ducks, we created artificial foraging patches, gave them equal amounts of each and really controlled the environment just a little bit more. Kind of like the the acorn study that we might reference a little bit later on as Absolutely. we get into the different value of different uh, the differential values across different acorn uh, or, or oat species, mm-hmm. right? That's correct. Okay, well, let's move. That's a great sort of introduction to the history of food habits, why it's important to us, and then some of the technical aspects of how we talk about it. So that's great. I appreciate that, Heath. Let's go on and get into the different types of of general categories of plants. You and some of your co-authors wrote a book a few years ago. Dr. Mike Schumer is lead author on this. Mm -hmm. You and uh, Sarah Fleming and Joshua Cheshire and James Calicut are the authors on this. It's titled A Guide to Moist Soil Wetland Plants of the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. It stemmed from a lot of the work that y'all did and some of the publications that Mm -hmm. you previously referenced. It doesn't talk about food values in here. I think I've complained to you before. That's my my one one objection to it. (laughs) It is a fantastic resource in terms of uh, it, it includes pictures of these different wetland plants. It includes distinguishing characteristics. Talked about the stems, leaves, the different fruits and seeds. It even has pictures of the of the fruits and seeds associated with each of these plants. But there's no mention of the wildlife value of it. That's right. So give me the history on that. I know you've talked about this before. I can. I, it, and, and that was on purpose. And if we went back to one of the original drafts of that book. It had a section in there on wildlife value of each one of those species. There's a but coming here. Yeah. But what we figured out when we were writing the food preference paradigm paper is that we thought we knew a lot more about what ducks preferred and selected than we actually do. We use common terminology yeah. like ducks prefer this. This is a great food. This is a important, I'm using air quotes here, an important food for, for waterfowl. What all we really knew is that at some point someone had reported that a duck consumed it. We had actually no idea most of the time what the energy value of that, the true metabolizable energy value of that food was, whether or not ducks ate it because it was common. Maybe it's not even good for them, but they're just eating it because it's there or they're very hungry. And so as we were as we were writing that uh, food preference paradigm paper that I mentioned earlier. We were simultaneously working on this book and a million other things as graduate students as they do. And so we were compelled to remove that section out of there because we thought we were falling into the trap that that we were complaining about the field falling yeah. into, basically, if, yeah. that, if that makes sense. So we had some information on some of these species, but I would say 95% of the species that occurred in this book, we had really no good scientific data on even what the energy value was, whether or not ducks eat ducks ate it, certainly not from good solid studies. And so we were compelled to remove that uh, section out of the out of the book. And many people wanted <laughs> <laughs> want that. And and I will say that that if we if we were to revise this book, which I do not see myself participating in anytime soon, it, it's a monumental effort. But if if we were to revise that book at some point, we would have enough information now or in a few years from now actually that that we probably could add that section in and have some information. We've come a long way in the last ten years, um, and so I think I think a few years from now, actually, we 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 could have that information. I would feel a lot better about it today or tomorrow, maybe than I than I did ten years ago when we started that book. Okay, well, I'll look forward to that in about <laughs> ten or fifteen years because I know once you commit to writing a book, it usually takes at least five or eight years to, in, to finish. At least <laughs> to in my free time, it, that's right. Right. So. 
Borrowing from the different categories in this book for the purpose of our conversation, uh, you, you, you all started by just sort of categorizing plants based on life forms, you might mm-hmm. say, just broad characterizations. Step through those for me if you, if you could, uh, just to kind of, and, and, and we're going to come back to these and provide some examples from each of these different um, categories and talk about them in, in a bit more detail, but but run down this list for us here, Heath. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and just one word of background first, this book was written for managers and for graduate students trying to figure out you know, what the plants were in a wetland. It is not a botanical guide. Um, it's somewhere in between, you know, a, a very fast reference um, that, you know, you might see a, like a thumb reference or something and a botanical guide. We tried to, we tried to sort of do something in the middle. Today, we would just build an app. We wouldn't write a book. Um, but, you know, 10 years ago was a, was a long time ago in, uh, in, yeah. in, in the app world. And is it worth a disclaimer here at this point that you receive no proceeds from the sale of this book, just to make sure we're clear on I, that? I do not. I appreciate that, Mike. I, I received no sales uh, from the proceeds of that book. That all goes to uh, the endowed waterfowl chair at Mississippi State University. Okay. All right. Just want to make sure we cleared that up before Thanks, people sir. started. Okay. <laughs> um, but being that it was a book for managers and not for botanists, we wanted to organize it in a way that I think at least most of our minds would work, right? We walk out and we can immediately say, that looks like a grass, that looks like a vine, that looks like a tree, so on and so forth. And so that's the way that that the book was organized. And, you know, we sort of forced everything into about a half dozen of these groups, if you will. Aquatics, wetland plants, often these are the ones that we're worried about for waterfowl food, uh, broadleaf plants, grasses, sedges and rushes, vines, and then trees and shrubs. And so that's based on these broad life forms. That's sort of the way that we the way that we organize the book, and oftentimes it's sort of the way we think about the quality of food for waterfowl as well. So let's just start here, Heath, and delve into each of these, and and hopefully people will begin to make some connections with what they're seeing out um, out in the wetlands, whether they're out hunting, like I said, or, or otherwise. And so the aquatics in this this group, as as you characterize them, are both emergent and then submerged. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. 
The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. Aquatic as well as floating leaf plants. So give us an idea of the the scope of that group of plants. What are some examples of both the emergent types as well as the submerged and floating leaved types? Yeah, the, the aquatic plants, those are the ones that, that we think of being wet almost all year round or almost the entire growing season. So things like a coontail or sago pondweed or longleaf pondweed or... Those are the uh, ones that are growing in the water. In the column, water, under the surface or, yeah, or maybe just right at, right at the surface. Oftentimes, if you're boating in the summer, um, those are the quote-unquote weeds that get caught in your prop, yeah. right, that you've got to clean out from... If, if you're lucky and you've got those in your in your lake or <laughs> yeah. river, you're you're cleaning those out of your uh, out of your prop or whatever. Those are actually very good waterfowl foods for some species that eat the leaves, eat the seeds, and even some of them that produce tubers like sago pondweed. Um, those can be very very good foods. But anyway, though that the the aquatic plants we think about those as you know their their feet are wet, their roots are wet almost all year round, or they're growing completely under the water with things like SAV submerged aquatic vegetation. Then there's a few other, another form of that, which is the, the are the floating leaf aquatic plants. Some of our pond weeds, um, a variety of other species that are going to- Lily pads. Li, there you go. Lily pads. Exactly right. Um, and, and those have some value for waterfowl, but generally less than than the submerged aquatics. Duckweed and duckweed, falls in that go. same same category. Exactly. And then what's the other one? The azola, it's sort mm-hmm. of a red. It's like it turns red in the fall. Yeah. Azola. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I actually encountered some of that this past weekend in it, a wetland. It, it, it's a neat one. Um, I'm not sure that we have much diet literature on on that one. That's kind of the the aquatics. There are a few other that a few others that we would think of that would be more emergent plants. So things like cattails, um, phragmites, uh, duck potato. People may be familiar with that one. Uh, arrow uh, arrowhead. Those species that that really need really wet areas all year. Most of those species, most of what I would call the emergent ones that stick out of the water, most of their value is going to be if in tubers if they produce those or as a cover plant. So for instance, cattails, very little food value directly. But if you find an emergent marsh with lots of cattails or giant cut grass, you can find a lot of ducks in it typically. That's because it's great cover. There's lots of invertebrate substrate there. So it's good for invertebrates. Um, You generally need water during the summer or most of the summer to grow that. So you've got natural conditions for wood duck brood habitat and wood wood ducks to produce in. So really good emergent plants too, but they're more of an indirect food source than a direct food source. What about bulrush in terms of its its food value? S- same thing. And so, you know, bulrush can... There's a lot of different species in yeah, that category, Yeah, that's right? what I was about to say. Sometimes when we say bulrush or rush, you know, a lot of us are actually thinking about 20 or 30 different different species. Yeah. Some of them, so some of the, the some of the scurpus species, some of the genoplectus, though I think. Oh, that's right? right, the new one. That's right, uh, the update. Um, I've got to get up with the times <laughs> here. Some of those species, the the seeds produce some seeds, and those seeds have value for waterfowl, but they're not big seed producers. And so overall, that group is mostly a insignificant or very low sort of on the food value, more for cover. And then there are a number of those emergent plants that that are 
invasive that are mm -hmm. exotic, invasive frag being the classic one. There's That's also right. some hybrid cattail, I think, that may be problematic in some locations, right? That's correct. And, and then let's go back to the submerged aquatics right now. We could actually add another little category to this, the seagrasses. A lot of people think about submerged aquatic vegetation as being a bit different from seagrasses. Seagrasses being more the marine-dwelling, marine-loving um, species such as shoal grass mm -hmm. and turtle grass and uh, star grass, and I forget mm -hmm. one of the other ones, but uh, witching grass is another, mm -hmm. right? So not all submerged aquatic vegetation and seagrasses are of equal foraging value for waterfowl, are they? No, no. No way, they're they're very different. So, for instance, even uh, Vallison area, right? Yeah. So, one of our freshwater species, wild celery. That one, it depends on the species of of diving duck, and it depends on what they're eating. The leaves we found actually of fairly low value. We were surprised. We thought there would be a bit more nutrition in the leaves for gadwall and mallards, but very little if they were to encounter that. Whereas we know the tubers have quite a bit of value, and we know, of course, that canvasbacks really key in on those on those tubers. And so um, it, it really depends on the species of duck and what they're what part of the plant they're eating. And then also we mentioned exotic invasive uh, species in the in the emergent you know aquatic category that's also true in some of the floating leaved and submerged aquatics right like uh, hydrilla is one that a lot of people are going to know about myriophyllum mm -hmm. is another one uh, those are the submerged aquatics and then there are uh, probably some floating leaved as well yeah there are so Absolutely. salvinia and Absolutely. then um, hyacinth so talk about that a little bit or are all of these that are exotic or even invasive of no value to waterfowl? What do we know about that? That's a, that's a good question. In general, the floating leaf species are of a far less value overall than many of the submerged and emergent species. Now, are we talking about the exotics or overall? In general, I'm okay, generalizing, general, okay. yeah, yeah, of direct seed, seed producers. But in particular, many of the invasives are, um, we, or at least we're not aware of, that they have much value, especially because they can outcompete some of our native species that do have some value. That's like with salvinia, that's what you see. You see it choking open water areas with hyacinths. You see it choking open water areas. And it can it can do some really strange things when it dies off. You can get a, uh, you can get really weird things with the with the oxygen level in the water. You can have fish kills. Um, you can cover up. Uh, of, of native plant beds, and so it, it, it's really problematic. More, but more indirectly than it's you know it's yeah it's not a great food, but it's also out competing some of our native species, which which are good foods. Um, I'm gonna do something dangerous here. I, I will say one of those species, hydrilla, actually is a very good duck food. I am, for the record, not mm -hmm. not. <laughs> uh, advocating for management of hydrilla necessarily, but we did test it uh, a few years ago um, with uh, uh, with the state of Florida, and it's a very good seed producer. It's a world species, so they think about how the the leaf structure is. It's kind of on a whirl um, around a central axis, and most of our what we found with the SAV, the submerged aquatic species, most of the world species like hydrilla, coontail, elodia, um, those are all very good or relative to other SAV species, they're all very good energy value in the, in the leaves. And so for gadwall, for those species, widgeon that may consume those, they're very good food in the, in the leaves. Having worked in Louisiana for a number of years, I can, al I can also say that Eurasian water milfoil is a species that a lot of coastal habitat managers like to see 
I mean, I think they would probably prefer to have their native species, but if they see uh, water milfoil, they're not going to try to to eradicate it, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is also consumed by certain waterfowl species, correct? It is. It's it's you know it's more of a I'm trying to use non botanical terms <laughs> here. It's 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 a branchier species, yeah. um, and those generally again have lower energy value than some of those world species, but. It seems like it's better than nothing, and it does have some food value for some species. Interestingly, we did some TME work a few years ago, and and it had a negative value for for some for some ducks, which means they ex- they expended more energy processing it than they did than they got out of it, uh, which is which is interesting. It was a bit unexpected. So Eurasian water milfoil certainly not a great food, but you know, in the absence of anything else, I yes, I ducks will certainly eat it. And what about the value of some of these submerged aquatic plants beyond the food value that they themselves provide, uh, either in terms of their seeds or tubers? There, anybody that that is familiar with them will have encountered a big, dense, submerged bed of this mm-hmm. SAV, right? And if anyone has been brave enough to stick their hand down in the water and pull up a big chunk of it, like most researchers have... <laughs> And if they put that in a bucket or in their boat or anything like that, they will all of a sudden see all of this additional aquatic life mm-hmm. jumping and squirming. Talk about that a little bit and, and what val- what is that good? Absolutely. Tons of invertebrates. That's the other thing. When you when you put structure in water and under the water, you'd immediately create a you know a whole other ecosystem for things to thrive. And so you get tons of invertebrates, which are uh, value to fish and value to waterfowl as food, um, thriving there. Another thing that's interesting, if you've, if you've ever sort of been to a lake and been in the zone just to the shore side, so just sort of behind where the SAV is, and seeing how much clearer the water is, you know, behind that SAV bed or in that SAV bed, it does a great job of reducing the the sedimentation or the the churn of sediments, um, that turbidity in the water, um, which can be good for a lot of a lot of species and good for emergent plants and, and SAV to grow as well. So uh, this the SAV has all sorts of great secondary benefits, um, you know, holding the holding the substrate down, um, providing uh, substrate for invertebrate uh, production. It's it's really good stuff. What do you tell people when they ask you about pondweed? That that lime green floating leaved mm-hmm. a plant that I mean. It's kind of hard to, I don't want people to get confused to think we're talking about Salvinia because what I'm going to ask you here, your answer is going to be starkly different, I think, between Salvinia and duckweed. But duckweed is the real thin leaf, just floats right on the top of the surface, right? Little bitty. What do you tell people when when they ask you about that? It, It can be quote, problematic mm-hmm. on on uh, small ponds, farm ponds, and things of that nature. Is it? Is there any value to it? Is it harmful? What, what's the story? Yeah, actually, gadwall eat a lot of uh, a lot of duckweed and wolfia, the even smaller version, basically, of that. And and so there is value to it. As you point out, it's hard to have a little bit of duckweed. It seems <laughs> like you've got no duckweed yeah. or, you know, your, your pond is covered. Yeah. And with, when your pond is covered, then you're shading out other species, and so it can be it can be fairly negative. And so a little bit of duckweed is a really good thing, but it's sometimes hard to have a little bit of duckweed. <laughs> so it seems like you go from a little bit to, you know, an, especially if it's a pond, it's a closed system. Yeah. You go to full coverage, and and if you want some better species in there, oftentimes you you have to you have to do an herbicide treatment to get rid yeah. of that. Yeah, I was tempted to ask you about what what kind of management applications can you apply to that, and you hinted at one of them. The mm-hmm. you know the other is I guess you just 
just live with it, right? I mean, that's not a management uh, um, uh, action, but that would be another alternative, right? It, in managed wetlands, a flush of water does mm. a really good job at, move, you know, duckweed moves. It's on top of the water. So you can, I just say move it downstream, but you can move it out of your impoundment depending on what your infrastructure is. A pond is more challenging. You yeah. can do a drawdown or a partial drawdown and then pump more water into it. And that can give you open water conditions for, for a while. Um, you're certainly not going to get me to recommend any kind of a carp solution. That's something that, that I don't recommend really in any situation ever because they're so hard to control. But but certainly an herbicide or a flushing of water and a partial drawdown or or even a, a flooding at very, very high if you're in a managed impoundment and you can push the water up and have some fluctuations, um, that can help with, with uh, duckweed control. Heath, what's the, the, the aquatic plant species that gets you most excited when you see it from a waterfowl standpoint <laughs> when you see it in a wetland? I love SAV. I know that's that's a little bit ridiculous. So that's, that's not one species. That's like a whole <laughs> no, no, group no, no. of but, species. But I, I've got okay. go. I've got to start there though. Mike. Okay, I've got to start there. I love SAV. Um, there hadn't been a lot of research on it. I was fortunate enough to get to do some of the research, some of the early TME research on it or energy research on that a few years ago, and and really enjoy seeing that. It's 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 a great environmental indicator as well. It has all these secondary benef- benefits, and so I really enjoy seeing that. So I'll get to your question now. Sago pondweed is one yeah. is one of my favorites. It's it's a bit more sensitive than some of the other species, certainly more than things like Eurasian water milfoil. So it's an indicator of, you know, of, of really good conditions and, and low turbidity and so on and absence of, of common carp and grass carp and other things that'll take it down too. So I love sago pondweed. The, the, the to leaves freshwater have, species? That's right. Or? That's right. The, it, the leaves have some nutrition, but then it's got a, a tuber as well that's that's really valuable. So to produce that seeds that are that are used by waterfowl? Small. They're, they're very small and there aren't many of them, but it does produce seeds as yeah. Yeah. And it is a it is a species that you will see often referenced in the waterfowl literature if you're if you're looking at you know what what plants are consumed by different species of ducks. I think canvasbacks mm-hmm. are known to consume it, and then pretty much any kind of duck, right? That, that's right. It, it, and sago is a is a cool one. If you can come across a very very clear wetland, so very few people have probably ever seen this, but if you can. If you can find a very clear wetland with huge plumes of sago growing, it looks like a bright green Christmas tree underwater. It sort of has that Christmas tree shape to it as it comes to the surface. It's a really cool species. Heath, whenever we started this, I didn't know how long this episode was going was gonna to go here, but we're <laughs> about 35 minutes into this right now, and I'm looking at the list of what else we have to discuss, and we have at least four or five different uh, r- remaining categories of plants. So I'm thinking we might want to break this into two episodes here. Uh, so we're going to do that right now. We still have to talk about broad leaves, grasses, sedges and rushes, trees and shrubs, and then cultivated crops. So if my math is correct, that's five additional uh, groups of, of plants. And so you're going to get a two-parter here. Sweet. So <laughs> thank you, Heath. We're going to we're gonna cut this one off here, and we will rejoin you here for the next episode. So thank you very much for joining us, Heath. Thanks, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Heath Hagee the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service National Wildlife Refuge System Southeast Region Waterfowl Ecologist. I would greatly appreciate his time and tremendous expertise on this subject. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the fantastic job he does editing these podcasts and getting them out to you. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.